to get us started, uh, let us open up our pillars of truth here to page 36. Page 36. Page 36. This is dealing in the second London Confession of Faith with the issue of saving faith. You could say gospel faith. Uh, What I have been operating under in Hebrews chapter 11 is the theme of enduring faith. But it's all meaning the same thing. It's the saving faith. This faith that changes. This faith that enables. This faith that preserves. This is what we're reading about here. Let's look at paragraph number two for my purposes today. Paragraph number two of the Second London Confession of Faith, chapter 14, regarding saving faith. By this faith, a Christian believeth to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word for the authority of God himself, and also apprehendeth an excellency therein above all other writings and all things in the world, as it bears forth the glory of God in his attributes the excellency of Christ in his nature and offices, and the power and fullness of the Holy Spirit in his workings and operations. And so is enabled to cast his soul upon the truth thus believed. And also, this is what I want to emphasize here, also acteth differently upon that which each particular passage thereof contains, yielding obedience to the commands, trembling at the threatenings, and embracing the promises of God for this life and that which is to come. But the principal acts of saving faith have immediate relation to Christ, accepting, receiving, and resting upon Him alone, for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. Look there at that clause, also acteth differently upon that which each particular passage thereof contains. Yielding obedience, you see, these actions, trembling at threatenings. Oh, but notice closely, beloved, embracing the promises of God for this life and that life which is to come. I share that from our confession of faith as we approach our message today because as we have been going through Hebrews 11, and it's going to become even drawn even more focused today as we get to the end, that that is a description of every single person that's been in this chapter. They have received saving faith. They have been transformed They have been put on a pilgrim journey and they act differently. They, we have seen, uh, at times yield obedience. We're going to see today there's a list of people that didn't always yield obedience. We see, uh, we have thus far in Hebrews 11 seen how they uh, tremble at his threatenings. But as we see too today, they rested in his promises in their life now and also in the one that was promised to them hereafter. And so I hope you see as we have those thoughts in the back of our mind about this picture of what saving faith, enduring faith, preserving faith looks like, 
in the actions and the life of God's people, it will uh, really uh, come home to you as we go through our, our message today. So let's now turn to the Word of God, the Word of God that was mentioned there in that paragraph. And we're going to go to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, we, uh, after three months, uh, 13 messages I counted. I think I might be missing one or two. I did count my sermon notes, though. I got over 123 pages of sermon notes on Hebrews chapter 11. And beloved, it's been a glorious chapter. This is a good chapter in our Bibles. Amen. They're all good. But this one particularly of fostering in our hearts, pointing us to the faithfulness of God to persevere unto the end. We come here to Hebrews chapter 11 once again. And Lord willing, we'll finish it out in verses 30 through 40. So let us look here at Hebrews 11. I've got to turn there myself. And let's read verses 29 to 40. We'll back up to verse 29. Hear the word of the Lord. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, which the Egyptians, assaying or pursuing to do, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were compassed about seven days. By faith, The harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not when she had received the spies with peace. And what shall I say more? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah and of David also and Samuel and of the prophets who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. And may the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of His holy word. What an exciting, rather fast-paced ending, isn't it? Uh, To the end of this chapter. 
the writer up until this point has been, you have noticed, very kind of slowly looking at different patriarchs of the Old Testament individually. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Moses. And, and we have been pausing and our approach has been just to look at each person and just look at their life and try to pull out certain attributes of what enduring faith looks like. So that we could pray for that. We could ask God, God help me to follow that example of what you're doing in that individual's life. We said it at the beginning of chapter 11, these individuals, these patriarchs, aren't to be put on pedestals. They are not Christ. They only point us to Christ, right? But, it, but nonetheless, their lives did demonstrate two things. God's faithfulness of what he was doing in redemptive history, and also how he can transform and how he can change someone. And so we come here today, and we want to look lastly and what it is in store through this kind of fast-paced wrap-up of this Old Testament catalog of saints who had enduring faith and figure out how to, how to kind of approach it. The message today that I'm giving my message is what faith achieves, what it endures, and what it obtains. What it achieves, what it endures, and what it obtains. I, you have in your sermon notes there the roadmap of where we're at in Hebrews. You see where we're going next in chapter 12. But as we wrap up chapter 11, he's laying down this groundwork to show us the faithfulness of God in the lives of his people to help them to make it unto the end so that he could use it in chapter 12 and say, now I'm going to give you a commandment. I'm going to give you something to do with this long witness of everything I've been talking about. I want us to begin, first of all, by looking at verses 30 and 32 and drawing out something that I thought was very peculiar that has yet to be shown to us. And that is corporate faith, corporately enduring faith. Look at verse 29. Notice this. We didn't get, I didn't see this last week, but in my studies I wanted to bring this forward because I, I believe that it's important. Notice in verse 29, as we're coming through, right, this catalog of saints, we got to Moses in verse 23, and you know, we completed Moses. But notice what 29 says. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dried land, which the Egyptians assayed to do were drowned. And then notice verse 30, what, what's new for us today to look at. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after, after they were what? Compassed about seven days. Well, beloved, you remember the account of this. How were they compassed about? Was Joshua out there marching around by himself? No. It was him, it was the priests, it was the captain of the host, it was the people of God ready to shout. They were corporately together walking around the most fortified, technologically advanced of that period of time, fortified city that the world had known at that, up until that point, right? They were corporately doing it together. Verse 29, they corporately walked through the Red Sea together. So there is an aspect to where I believe that the text is wanting us to notice, not just gloss over or miss it, that enduring faith that he's really been talking about here in this chapter is, in a sense, not totally so individualistic that it doesn't benefit us corporately. Okay? Throughout all of the Bible, there is, I hope you would agree with me, a consistent thread that's woven throughout the Bible. And this thread has a lot of strands to it, and it communicates this witness. 
There is no single man, no single family, no patriarch, one patriarch, Abraham, Noah, or Moses, no single patriarch, no king, no single king like David, no prince, no ruler, no group of rulers who ought to consider themselves, quote-unquote, as doing okay or, quote-unquote, getting by just fine when they are outside of or independent of the gathered people of God. They should never think that way. They should never be thinking, by myself, I'm doing just fine and I'm okay, thank you very much. Think about this for a moment. Whether it is Joseph down in the pit, whether it's Daniel in the lion's den, whether it's David running and hiding from Saul in caves, whether it's Paul and Barnabas in shackles, or whether it's John Bunyan locked up in the Newgate prison in London. In almost all of these instances, where we find one of God's people, one of his spiritual sojourners, one of his people who have been given enduring faith, separated from the community, the visible gathered people of God, it is always generally the case it's because of persecution or imprisonment, not self-isolation, not self-chosen separation. It's because they had no other choice, right? And there's a reason for this, beloved. We see in verse 29 why God wanted them to all walk together, not Moses walk by himself, and then the other, then him send back a boat and bring the other ones all safely across. Why Joshua with everyone wanted to walk around the walls of Jericho. Because all throughout Scripture, this interdependency that God's people have who are sojourners, sojourning together on this pilgrim journey, it's because God is wanting to always massage into our thinking, always massage into the covenant uh, community of His on earth. This idea that we are interdependent upon one another. Uh, just like a human body. There's, you guys know this. You have different organs and some of them are not working probably the best right now. And, and, and you have one body, but you have different uh, organs and you've got different parts to your body, right? But they have to work together to be the healthiest, to be the most uh, functional, and uh, to be the most useful. If you have some parts of your body that ain't working right, it starts, well... Not to put you on the spot, Brother Aaron, but his hand ain't working too good. I, went to, I forgot he got his cast off and I went to go shake his hand. And his usefulness is limited. He would confess this, right? Look at your sermon notes. and there, Because to prove this, there's perhaps not a clear passage in Scripture to demonstrate this. As the body is one from 1 Corinthians 12, 12. It has many members. And all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ, His church. Now, this verse, I admit, in this context, what is it doing? It's teaching the Jews and the Gentiles who differed on many secondary issues that in the true gospel church that they were united in as one, they were together as Jews and Gentiles, joint heirs, and joint protectors of that true gospel. And they had a responsibility. Just like the people in verse 29, just like the people in verse 30 had, they had a responsibility to one another, and more importantly, to God. To work together, and to have unity when at all it is possible. 
This sort of unity and interdependency, beloved, is what was exercised here by those who individually had enduring faith, but together they passed through the Red Sea. Think for a moment with me just real quick how important corporate faith is. What if on that day, verse 31, Joshua says, hey, the Lord has come to me. I am the prophet for all of us. The Lord has chosen me, so for the soul. And here's how we're going. He wants us to walk around here seven days. This is how he wants us to do it. Well, brothers and sisters, what if there was a faction amongst the group who began to say, well, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I think six days would be enough. After all, the, 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 the temperature's out, you know, right now, Joshua, in this time, the climate out right now, isn't it seven a little excessive? Uh, and, and after all, I mean, we're going to be putting ourselves out there vulnerably. I mean, they're up on the high part of the wall. They could be looking down on us. Um, I, are you sure that this, this is what God said? Um, I mean, I know that you've told us that God has brought us this far. I've seen some of the supernatural, extraordinary events that have taken place. But Joshua, really, this seems absurd. Horns and shouting. Now, now, we all know why God did this. I mean, God did this because He wanted to demonstrate His power, His might, uh, His faithfulness in the life of His people. But don't miss the aspect that that great event, that great accomplishment of God revealing Himself as the one true living God, as we'll see in a little bit as Rahab confessed, you know, because of the great acts that were taking place. Um, that came about in connection with and separately from their corporate faith. The faith that He gave them. Walking by that faith. Yielding to His commands in that faith. The great accomplishment of the walls of Jericho falling were inseparately connected to them as individual saints saved walking in faith together. No dissenters. No murmurs, no complainers. The same thing could be applied to the Red Sea too. Moses, why are we going in this direction? Right, This is a bad idea, etc., etc. Now what this forces us to do is to acknowledge, whether we like this or not, because the TV evangelist has so abused these passages, whether we like it or not, beloved, we have to see that God does in fact use the corporate faith of His people in unity together in His promises, in His commands to do great and amazing things. Look at this, the passages I gave you in your sermon notes. We can never get away from the relationship of living and practicing a life of true, biblical, dependent, and enduring faith and its connection with God's will in outpouring His blessings and His promises. They needed to utilize their individual enduring faith collectively in unity to bring about these great accomplishments. This was God's will. He wanted it to do this, this way. Look at Hebrews 6.12. The importance of faith in bringing about God's promises and His blessings in the life of His people. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherited the promise. Where there was no faith, brothers and sisters, being exercised individually or corporately, there wasn't going to be any inheriting of the promises. Again, just demonstrating the importance of 
corporate faith. Us together as sojourners, laboring together in the faithful promises of God. 1 John 5, 4, For whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world. Even our faith. The instrumental role of the faith that God has given us being lived out in the examples we've seen in chapter 11. Do you see it's inseparably connected to the blessings of God in our lives corporately as a church? Matthew 21, 21. Truly I say unto you, these are the words of our Lord, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what I has done, what I have done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. He's speaking, of course, there in the context of the intertestimonial period with the disciples. But please don't miss the big point here of what he's doing. He is wanting them and he's wanting us to see in verses 29 and 30 today that if we don't walk in unity in the promises here in this life and the ones to come, if we don't come alongside one another and pick one another up when one of us is getting a little sluggish and a little apathetic, brothers and sisters, we we ought not to expect great things. We ought not to expect walls to fall down. We ought not to expect seas to be parted, if I may say it that way. You know in the Bible, whenever there is corporate faith waning in an assembly or in a church, or where there is this, um, this drifting of just a couple of, you know what, I, I know what enduring faith looks like. I, I, I know that it's supposed to be living out a life. Hey, you, you know what, I gave it to you in your sermon notes. Look at, let's, let's nail down what we're even talking about here when we say enduring faith. You may remember back in Hebrews 11.1, 1, we labored extensively to try to come up before we entered, even entered into the chapter. Well, what is the working definition of enduring faith, saving faith, biblical faith? That, that was going to be our working definition. And we came up with this definition. In your notes, faith, the type of faith that we're talking about here, where individuals corporately come together to exercise it, right? It is a confident assurance in God's faithfulness concerning things and realities that are hoped for and is a persuasion concerning the promised realities not seen. What I'm trying to bring to the surface here in verse 29 and verse 30 is this is what they were living out together. And look what was done. God used their unity living out their faith together to bring about these great accomplishments and these great purposes. And so that ought to encourage us that, ought us, that ought to make us look and see there is an importance of what we've been focusing on all throughout this, this chapter, um, fostering in my own life an enduring faith through the example of Abel, through Enoch, Noah, Moses, etc., and Abraham, etc., there's also a very important aspect that we don't want to get so individualistic that we miss the importance of enduring faith corporately together as brothers and sisters in the local church. Because if we do, you know what the flip side is. The flip side in Scripture has always been, and every single one of us would say, yeah, this is true. It's maybe true of me now, or it's been true of me in the past. I have a tendency and a propensity to be the other way. The flip side to corporate faith, a body working together, is murmuring and complaining. So what happened to the children of Israel in the wilderness. They're murmuring and complaining. A sign of 
something's not quite working right, either in one individual's enduring faith or a couple, is it brings into the corporate working together, right? What is it? Of conf- being confident in the assurance of God's faithfulness concerning the things and the realities that we all hope for. Now, all of us in here is the Church of Christ. We're hoping for something in our own day and age. We want to see the church victorious. And indeed, I would say the church is always going to be victorious. Don't ever doubt that. We have these certain ideas, right? And we're hoping for this to be a reality. But the problem is we don't see it. And the moment we stop walking in enduring faith as individuals, we will come together corporately. And the first thing that will happen is we will begin to murmur and to complain. And when we do this, we're exhibiting as a body or as an individual, we are exhibiting that we truly don't have assurance in God's faithfulness. We are exhibiting that we truly don't have assurance and persuasion that God will bring about the things that we all hope for and the things that we can't see. This is why murmuring, complaining, gathered together amongst the people of God is so detestable in God's sight. In the Word, He always deals with it very harshly when it starts to creep up in and among His covenant people. Because it is them not trusting in Him and trusting in something else. And so he always deals with it. Corporate faith in verse 29 and 30. I hope that you see it's, it's such an important aspect in this whole overarching chapter on faith that ought to cause us to say, you know what? I, I, I want to be looking out for my brother and sister who may be expressing either actions or words or thoughts, that they're struggling with being confident in the assurance of God's faithfulness concerning the things that He's given us to do as the church and our commission, right? Now we get to verse 31, and it shifts back more into what it's been doing in this chapter. The, the inspired author shifts back more in individual faith, right? Look at verses 31 and 32. It's focused on uh, the harlot named Rahab. And then it gets down into a series of judges in in verse 32, uh, going into the life of David, coming out of that that historical transition in the life of Israel and into the Samuel and into the prophets. Now, in previous messages, like I said, I've been uh, looking at the particular attributes of individuals. But I want to take a different approach now if you would allow me to do that. I think it's totally fine to do this because it is in our text. I don't want to look at the individual attributes of the enduring faith of these particular individuals. What I want to do here to finish off the chapter is focus on, as you see in your notes there, that enduring faith is possessed, would you not agree, by some of the most unlikely individuals? Do we not see this toward the end of the chapter? I mean, we've been focusing on Abel, on Enoch, on Noah, on Abraham, on Moses. You know, I mean, people you would point to and you would say, hey, that's how that's who you need to be like. You need to be like those guys, right? And then we get to the end and we have Rahab, the harlot. It's funny when you start doing the study you know, on this and the life of Rahab, I mean, this lady was remarkable, what she did. She basically 
created national sabotage and espionage for the safety of God's people. And he rewarded her for it. You guys know the story. Joshua sends the spies in there and you know, the enemy's hot on their heels. The, uh, the, the, the town police of Jericho, as if it were, were pursuing them. And they come to this Canaanite prostitute's house seeking shelter. And God had already went ahead and he did a work in her heart. And she realized that he was the one true and saving God. Think for a moment that the context that surrounded her was so spiritually disadvantaged She did not have the instructions of Joshua. She did not have the influence of Moses. She's in a pagan city practicing the most ancient line of business, selling herself as a harlot, no matter what some commentators try to say. It's so interesting. Some try to say she was a a bartender, a tavern maid of an inn, because they're trying to make the lineage of Jesus Christ referenced in the book of Matthew, chapter 1, more clean and and more pristine I guess and they're missing the big picture here aren't they is that enduring faith according to what we read this morning in the gospel of John chapter 8 by God's sovereign grace is dispensed and it is given to some of the most unlikely individuals to shine forth his glory to shine forth his praise and what his mercy and grace and this is what we see here in the life of Rahab She was a Canaanite harlot. And she's listed here in the catalog of some of the most preeminent of the faithful people of God who endured unto the end. She is brought into the covenant community of God. uh, She's given faith to believe in the one true living God. And she is made part of that community who together walk around the walls of Jericho. I'm going to go out on a limb here and use some sanctified imagination, but when this Canaanite harlot came into the gathered people of God who had been promised through their patriarchal federal head of the Abrahamic covenant that they were the covenant descendants of Abraham, when she came walking in, I would speculate there was probably a couple that had a little bit of a problem with that. You know? And Joshua had to go to them and say, Hey, listen, I I think you're forgetting a couple of things. I think that you're forgetting who you once were. I think you're forgetting where you once were, where we all once were, and what God has promised and what He has done thus far for us. And it reminds us of the passage in the Bible that says, to whom much is given, much is expected. Amen? We're to forgive much, brothers and sisters. It's these types of passages, I believe, that God places in His Word by the inspiration of his spirit, very strategically, to constantly, you could say, just keep amongst us that healthy dose of gospel humility. Amen? The passage from John 8 this morning. The passage of Rahab. Notice, the harlot. The harlot Rahab. Just screaming off of the page. But through faith, she didn't perish, which the rest of the city. I mean, the list goes on here. We go right down into verse 32. These examples of individual faith who are the most unlikely characters. What shall I say 
more here. This is just a rhetorical device he's saying as he's writing the letter. Uh, I could spend, basically what he's saying here in verse 32, I could spend all day to go down through the chronicles of history and give you example upon example, but time is short. I'm writing a letter here. So he's going to kind of do abbreviated version of what he's been doing so far. And what shall I say more? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah. Well, well, Gideon, think for a minute who, would get, who was Gideon. You remember the time of the book of Judges when the Midianites had their heavy hand of persecution upon the people of God? And what is he doing? We find Gideon over in the book of Judges kind of crouching and hiding as he's milling some wheat and the angel of the Lord comes. And here's Gideon, a man who was not only part of the smallest tribe of the people of God, but the smallest family within the smallest tribe of the people of God. And then what did Gideon say when the angel of the Lord said, I'm going to use you to do great and mighty things to lead an army to press back the enemies of God, the Midianites. And what did Gideon say? I, I can't do that. I can't do that. You read into it. Some commentators say, well, that was a kind of a fearful thing. He was kind of a coward. I mean, he didn't have this innate boldness and courage. You know, when we think of Gideon, this this mighty man Gideon, God made him into a mighty man. But to begin with, he was a very unlikely candidate. And when we look at verse 32, that's really what we see here. As very unlikely candidates transformed and changed by the grace and the power of God, who then once they had that encounter with God, beloved, they bank all of their hope on him. They live out the definition that we have. They bank all of their confidence and their assurance in His faithfulness, not themselves and not their abilities. We could definitely say that's true. Amen. Of Barak. You remember Barak? The guy who wouldn't go into battle unless Deborah, God's prophetess at that time, amongst the people of God, went into battle with him. Barak, what do you mean you won't go into battle unless the woman goes with you? You know? Again, the sign of... Just not the best uh, courage, the best boldness, the great zeal to do the great accomplishments for God. But he did do that accomplishment for God. He did push back the enemies of God. He did conquer God's enemies and, and foes. I remember a few years ago, we went through the book of Judges. And it, all the, if you're a guy, it's like the best book in the Bible. If you're, you know, you got all the, the blood and the guts and the adventure and all of that stuff. And here you have Barak. He, he, what does he do? He puts to flight Sisera. What happened to Sisera? He goes into the tent of a woman. And it was a woman who did Sisera in. By faith, she picks up that spike and she drives it through Sisera's head and nails it to the tent floor. She's the most unlikely person that would be able to accomplish any great things for God. So is Rahab. So is Barak. So is Gideon. Who, who of us in here would point to Samson and say, Son, I hope that you grow up and be just like Samson. You see the picture here at the tail end of Hebrews 11 after shining such a spotlight, beloved, on all of these men who had did great things that God uses very unlikely individuals for His glorious purposes and His plans. And it doesn't always take time. Samson was definitely a work in progress, was he not? Out of control passions, out of control anger, And God had to humble him down to like a grinding ox before he finally was subdued to the will of God to do what God had brought him into redemptive history to do, and that was to bring the temple down upon all the pagan enemies. 
But yet Samson is shown to us as someone who we are to look to and say, that's the type of faith that I need to have in order to make it to the end. Brothers and sisters, I wanted to take this route this morning at looking at this, not only because of just what I know about these Bible stories on the surface, because some of us can walk in the church of God and some of us in our own personal lives, we're our own worst enemies. We beat ourselves up more than God beats us up. I thought the brother did a good job this morning. Brother AJ and John chapter 8 brought together a, a right reverence to the law of God but also understanding the grace and the mercy that only can come through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is what we're seeing here, friends. We're seeing here that God takes a motley crew and through enduring faith that He gives them, when they stop looking at themselves and they say, I'm confident in your faithfulness that you will do the things that I'm hoping you will do and that you have promised, I'm persuaded that they will be accomplished even though I cannot see and they don't look like they can be done. He uses that motley crew to do great things and he will not do it any other way. He will not send Michael the archangel down here to fix the church's problems. He's not going to send Gabriel the angel down here to to fix society's problems. He works in and through individuals who otherwise are the most likely individuals that could ever do it, they come together in the local ecclesia, and guess what? They walk together in faith, and they do great things for God. That's what we're seeing here in this this picture. Jephthah made a rash vow with God. He didn't take God's word. Remember, God told him, this is what I'll do, Jephthah. But, but God, I want to make sure that you're going to do that. So let's make a compact, a covenant. And uh, if you give me this victory, then I'll offer up my own daughter as a burnt sacrifice. Commentators are spilled on that, whether he did or not. I personally hold to the opinion that he did do it. Because when you look at the, when you exegete the word, burnt offering, what he did, that's what the word means in the Old Testament. And so that was a rash vow that Jephthah did. Right? David, what do we think of David? Most of us, despite he was a man after God's own heart, this, this shows you how perverted our minds are in the church. We, we hear of David, who's given to us this great example as enduring faith, making it unto the end in the catalog of the Old Testament. So what do we do? Oh yeah, but you don't forget what he did with Bathsheba. Don't forget that one sin he did. You know, Don't forget that and what he did to Uriah, the murder of Uriah. Like his whole... Uh, legacy is stained by that one thing. We can't forget that. Well, of course, it's preserved in the purity of God's Word so that we can learn and grow thereby. Absolutely, don't get me wrong. But dear friends, the picture here is of God's faithfulness in the lives of Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Jephthah, David. It's not until we get to Samuel here and the prophets do we even begin to get back on track with some people that have more, shall we say, religious, reputable reputations. I mean, Samuel was the one that could look at all the people of the Israelite in the eye when they were demanding a king. And he said, examine me. Is there any reproaches in my life? Is there anything wrong in my life? And not one man could bring a charge against Samuel. He was a man after God's own heart. He was a man who walked with the Lord. But then we get to the prophets. And again, we were just coming out of Jeremiah Jeremiah always didn't have the most boldest confidence. Him and Isaiah both at times thought they were the only ones out here living the true Christian life as if it were, right? 
You see, friends, God uses these individuals to show His glory and His power and His might. And doing that, these individuals, this motley group, as I said, they will achieve great things through faith. And this is what we see under our next heading. Look at what these individuals did. Who through faith... This is the power of God. We don't need to go all the way back to Hebrews 11.1. 1. We keep amplifying this. I have to keep saying this because faith is not this theoretical thing out here that we have power over and that we can conjure up. No, this is a sovereign work of God that He gives you. He plants within your soul a conversion, a steadfast confidence that He is who He says He is and He will do what He says He will do. It is through this faith that these motley individuals, they subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Verse 34, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed violent in fight, turned the fight of the armies of the aliens. Most scholars believe that what's going on here is just not any uh, focus or particular mention of any sort of event, but just a catalog of things that we may not even know about in the Bible that happened. Through the valiant work of enduring faith where individuals corporally are coming together, trusting and believing God, and they're doing these things. Now some of them just look with me, it's, I put it in your sermon notes, are pretty obvious. They, they, it could very likely be alluding to Daniel, stop the mouths of lions. We have no other record in sacred scripture of, of where this is done. We know that David shut the mouth of a lion. Amen. It could be referring to him. So uh, I would like to think that it's referring to Daniel. But the point here is, is that they did great things. They believed God. They moved forward in faith. They didn't get defeated. They didn't get downcasted. They achieved great things. They quenched the violence of fire. Many believe this is the three Hebrew boys in the time of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar's furnace. They escaped the edge of the sword. How many of the prophets that we read in the Old Testament who are being hunted like dogs? Jezebel coming after the preachers of God, the prophets wanting to put the sword to their throats and their backs. But despite all of these obstacles, and let us not kid ourselves, beloved, these were real obstacles. Now, at this point in history, here in the West, in America, we don't have a sword, per se, at our back. Nobody's being burned at the stake. Don't get too comfortable, however. I mean, you know, we, we, you need to be aware of what's going on. Uh, I'm not going to use fear tactics or try to manipulate you and steering you in a certain political way here. But we know the hearts of men. That we, that's all we need to know, right? You know the natural depravity of men, and you know they love the darkness and they hate the light. So Christians are always on the mark. Christians are always on the radar. They're always in the crosshairs, beloved the followers and the people of God, right? And all throughout redemptive history, and even at the, from the, the consummation of the new covenant moving forward, this has always been the case. There has always been obstacles after obstacle after obstacle. And while we may not have a sword at our backs, as you may not be dr- being drug out and being put in prison because you didn't pay taxes to the state church or being dragged to the burning stake, There's many around the world who are. We definitely know that's the truth. But you nonetheless try to apply this in our own context. You have obstacles. You and I have obstacles. And sometimes those obstacles, if we're honest with ourselves, friends, they are are us. We are our own worst obstacle. 
when it comes to enduring faith, individually and even corporately, aren't we? But God, despite you, God, despite me, <laughs> despite these obstacles of remaining corruption, remaining flesh, He will do what He has promised He will do. How can we at this point in the message or consideration today take what I just said of exalting God's sovereignty, exalting who He is as the one true powerful God and say, well then, I guess I just don't have to do anything. How can You can't say that. You see how we go back to last week of Moses' example? It's all through the Bible. These doctrines of God's sovereignty and human responsibility, it comes to the surface, doesn't it? One obstacle this morning, I want us to reflect. It's in your sermon notes. We pause for reflection here. Do we believe our doctrine of God? Do we really believe it? Or, Or is there an obstacle right now in your life uh, individual in your own personal life or in a family context or even in a church context? Is there an obstacle to where you're losing the assurance that God will be faithful to do what he said he will do? If so, recalibrate your thinking with what we're seeing here. Believe the doctrine of God. Walk in faith to the best of your sanctified ability Follow the plain precepts and principles that he set forth down for you as an individual in his word. And God will take care of the rest, friends. I I promise you, he will. (laughs) I can say that with all authority, without any hesitation. If we would individually and corporately walk by faith, believe his promises in the year 2023 and going into 2024. Can you believe it's already halfway over? In 2024, God will achieve great things. Do you believe that? I certainly at times fall in the ditch and stop believing it. As he's going to tell us in chapter 12, what is your excuse? What is my excuse to ever doubt God after going through chapter 11? We have no reason to doubt him. He will achieve great things through the faith that He gives His people if they would walk by faith. But it's going to require, as we see next, moving to our next heading, much endurance. It's not without trials. Verse 36, others had trial of cruel mockings. Most scholars believe that now the author is bringing it up to the first century. He has already talked about In chapter 6, you may recall, he was given a stark warning. Some of the most sober warnings in all of the Bible being told to the Christian community about um, uh, leaving the faith, uh, about apostatizing. And you remember in chapter 6, it was connected with the idea that some of them were fearing being ridiculed publicly. As to where before they would stand firm with their brother and sister, now some of them were shrinking back a little bit. And so we see here that he is bringing it up to the context of where we're at in the first century. Definitely could apply to all the ones before them that had come. They had trials of cruel mockings, of scourging, yea, moreover, bonds of imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented but notice in your sermon notes verse 38 this crowning I'm calling it commendation of them verse 38 
these individuals, as if it were this motley group of sinners saved by grace, even though God used them to do mighty things, it come with a dear price. And you have this glorious phrase in verse 38, of whom the world was not worthy. The world was not worthy. In the opinion of some in our day and age, these descriptions of the cost of following Christ, these descriptions of what it may cost someone to pursue and endure in Christ individually and together, they would want us to skip over them altogether. They would want to, for all practical purposes, take them out of their Bibles. Now, allow me to give you a sampling of what I mean about these enduring examples of suffering for Christ. I'm just going to list off some titles. I've done this from time to time because it's a good barometer of where we're at as the church, the modern church. Allow me to give you some sampling of some most popular literature found in the Christian bookstore. I'm just going to give you four titles here. Your best life begins each morning. You are special. 15 ways to live longer and healthier. And here's a bestseller as of recent. It's your time. Now I don't share those titles to be facetious or cute or funny or sarcastic in any way. I'm simply sharing them to illustrate exactly how backwards that we can become in our contemporary understanding about what biblical enduring faith really looks like. Because this is how it looks. It doesn't come easy, does it? It, it? it doesn't come by nature. It doesn't come without a cost. It comes with a great cost enduring in the end, individually and also together with the group of other individuals called the church. It costs something, it's hard. But despite all of this challenge, those who are individually and willing to corporately undergo these sufferings, undergo these afflictions, undergo these sacrifices, they have this crowning commendation to say that this world's not worthy of them. I give it to you a note. I thought that this gentleman, Henry Williams, in his commentary captured this perfectly. He says, The principles which governed their character and especially the principle of faith, which upheld them in all of their trials, gave them, notice here, a moral elevation. I like the way he phrased that. A moral elevation, he goes on to say, surpassing the dignity of wealth or outward station or status, raising them far above, there's that elevation idea again, raising them far above all who acted on worldly maxims, you could say philosophies or worldviews, and those who live for worldly objects. Brothers and sisters, we see here individually and also corporately gathered together those who have enduring faith by the uh, supernatural operations of the Holy Spirit. We are as the people of God, as pilgrims in this world, in a mysterious way able to have as if it were an elevated view of reality. Right? It's part of our makeup. As spiritual sojourners, we have this elevated view above all that may be going on down here. No matter what it is, this kingdom, this kingdom, this part of the world, this part of the world, this county, this school board, you get the picture. We are what? Above all of that. 
And we see above all of that. And we know despite the suffering or the sacrifice or the cost that we may be called to, we understand that despite all of that, there's a better promise because this isn't all there is. The people that are running around frantic, they're forgetting that perception, that, that, that airplane ride. How many of you guys have been in an airplane? You love those glorious panoramic views, right? Well, this is what the Old Testament saints, this is what you possess, the panoramic view of the real reality that we're all living in right now. And despite suffering, despite sacrifice, this world's not worthy of the witness of the church of Jesus Christ in it. But yet, for the present time, this is where God has you and I. He had a time for Gideon. He had a time for Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samson, Samuel, and so on and so on. But this is our time as his people. And we have this perception of things going on, right? The right perception. And we're to live by enduring faith, knowing that he's faithful and he'll accomplish what he says he'll do to do. So there should be nothing at all that ought to be discouraging us, causing us to complain, causing us to grumble, causing us to murmur, causing us all of those things which are a reflection of the doubt we have that God is doing what he is promised to do. There's not, absolutely no reason. Absolutely no reason. So whatever it is, and we'll get into it more, it's just leading into chapter 12. Let us shake the dust off, brothers and sisters. There is an exciting call to the church of God who has been giving enduring faith as individuals coming together corporately to do amazing things for the gospel and the kingdom of Christ. But it doesn't come without sacrifice. It will demand sacrifice. It will demand possible sufferings. But don't you see? It's glorious. It's absolutely amazing and glorious. Now we come to verse 39 and 40. He ends all of this focus upon these faithful, enduring saints like this. And these all, the ones named, the ones unnamed, having obtained a good report through faith, some of your translations modern will say a good testimony, a good witness, Right, the, 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 the witness of them exercising enduring faith is known amongst the, the household of God. They're being talked about here. They were being, they were passed, it was passed down uh, patriarch to patriarch. All these having obtained a good report through faith received not the promises. They received not the promises. Well, what is the reward of faith? if they received not the promises. Well, first of all, this doesn't mean they didn't receive anything. Look at your sermon notes. We know that they received everything. Context is key. He's been talking about in chapters 4, 5, and 6, the Old Testament people who wandered through the wilderness, remember? And talking about them, he comes into chapter 6 and he says things like this, which we know that they did receive some promises. He says in verse 12, chapter 6, you have it in your sermon notes, Be ye not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He was talking specifically about the Old Testament people there. Basically saying, hey, don't be like them. Don't give up. Keep going. They received some promises. But then he got to verse 15 I gave you in your sermon notes, referring specifically to Abraham and said, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. 
Verse 33, where we're at today, mentions that they did what? They obtained promises. And beloved, they did obtain promises. Abraham did obtain the promised son in the temporary sense. Not the messianic son, but the temporary son, Isaac. They did obtain other promises. David did get, he was given a temporal throne, wasn't he? Not to mention the fact that they were given the blessings of knowing that their sins had been forgiven in and through the faith in the Messiah. And all of us too, we experience immediate promises fulfilled by God when we're converted. Uh, why, why should we think, while we look, look at it like this, here's, you can, here's one way you can look at it. While we all are still waiting for that eschatological great consummation, where we'll be free from certain plagues of the flesh, no more pain, no more crying, no more suffering, etc., etc. You're waiting for that promise. You're longing for that promise. But do not forget that you have already received many promises, haven't you? Haven't you received many promises? God said He would send Jesus Christ to take away the sins of the world. He has taken away your sins. God had promised that He would send a Lamb who would wash us white as snow. And upon the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we sung it in our hymn, coming into this message today, you're made white as snow. You're atoned for. This promise has been fulfilled. You own it. You have it. These Old Testament believers, friends, they were forgiven for their sins. They knew God through the promised Messiah. They were themselves you could say, walking in the fulfilled promises of God, except for one. The promise. And these all, look at verse 39, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. The promise. So, what is the promise that they did not receive? Context is king. Look at, ver- look at chapter 8, verse 6 in your sermon notes. The inspired writer already has taught us what, they, what God held back from them. It begins with chapter 8, verse 6. But now hath he, referring to Jesus, the context here, you recall, is him amplifying and exalting the role and the office of Jesus as the high priest, the great high priest, the one and only preeminent high priest. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry by how much more also he is the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. So whatever promises that they received temporally, we've already laid this groundwork, are inferior to the better promises here. That today we're learning they didn't receive. Okay? Follow that? Right? We already laid this groundwork. Yeah, Abraham had a son, Isaac. David had a physical throne, yes. They had a land. Physical land, yes. They received those promises by faith. They had to suffer. They had to endure. They had to walk the, 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 the Roman miles, if it were, and put in the sweat, blood, and tears. Be corrected by God. Get back on track, etc., etc., etc. It's what a whole Bible is, a history book of this. Right? But on none of those things, the promises they believed were the promise. Because 
What they didn't receive was going to be a better promise based upon a better covenant, which only Jesus Christ could fulfill. Okay, we have that there. Go to chapter 9, verse 15. For this cause, he, Jesus, is the mediator of the new covenant, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first covenant, they which are called might receive the promise of what? Eternal inheritance. Jesus here, we laid the groundwork when we were in chapter 9, verse 15, of what the blood of Jesus did for the Old Testament people. And if you remember, if we're correct in our understanding of chapter 9, verse 15, they could not receive the internal inheritance because Jesus' blood had not been yet shed. It wasn't until the inauguration of the new covenant upon the cross, His blood being spilled. That was the beginning of the new covenant. That was the actual, you could say, inauguration. Before that, it was all promise. But when He comes and He sheds His blood on the cross, the covenant ransom, the covenant payment was sealed, it was done, and now it begins. And you recall how I showed you that the Bible, it is very plausible teaches the idea that the Old Testament saints could not experience the blessedness of the heavenly sanctuary, the heavenly temple, the, the heavenly priesthood role of Jesus in the heavenly realm until His blood had been shed upon the cross and then every subsequent believer after them that would die would go to heaven together. They wouldn't go before us and we wouldn't go before them. His blood would be shed. And only until His blood would be shed would they receive the perfection of the heavenly realm, the perfection of everything they had patiently waited for, but yet not still had, even up until the time of the New Testament. The perfection in view here, some, I have heard teach this, in a way was a perfection of something that had only been promised and came about by uh, the sacrifice of Jesus so that their sins could be forgiven. So in other words, like they didn't have full forgiveness of their sins until Jesus' new covenant was inaugurated with the sacrifice on the cross. I'm not persuaded of that because of what we have in 9.15. Look at 9.15. For the redemption... This, he's the mediator of the new covenant that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Not the promise of forgiveness of sins. The promise of eternal inheritance is what they were waiting on. Going back to chapter 9 verse 15. The, Old Test- the souls of the Old Testament saints were in Abraham's bosom. And I think that this is a beautiful picture of the glorious work of the cross because they were even in the spiritual realm looking, anticipating, and waiting for the Messiah to come and to pay the covenant price so that they could do what? Receive the perfection. Could receive the promise. They could be in the final eschatological eternal bliss that they were always looking for. Hebrews eleven sixteen. 16. 
God had provided some better things for us. We will not go to Abraham's bosom. We will die and be immediately in the presence of the Lord because Jesus' cross work has already been done. They without us should not be made perfect. This again, as Hebrews 11 has been doing, it puts together the unity and also the disunity of the Bible. It's unified in the sense that there's one Savior, there's one people all looking toward the one redemptive act so that they all could receive the one redemptive eternal promise that is eternal life in heaven. They're all looking for that. All of us are looking at all the Old Testament saints, all the New Testament saints, you who are alive today. But also there's a discontinuity that we recognize in the Bible that the Old Covenant couldn't promise that. It never could promise that. It never gave that. It never offered that. It could only be done in and through the New Covenant. And so in this Old Covenant scheme, these people, they were separated as if it were by a chasm. By a chasm that they could never cross, but only Christ could cross it. And when He crossed it, and when He gave His blood, that's when all of these people who patiently, I mean years after years after years, were waiting for the Messiah to come, were waiting for the Messiah to come, hoping that they, when they died, would experience the eternal bliss and the eternal inheritance. When they died, they still, the Texas teaches today, had to wait even more. Now, I don't know about you, I get impatient in the line at Walmart. And here these individuals, these Old Testament saints, Patiently looking for that country. Patiently looking for that country whose foundation is a heavenly one. When they died, friends, they didn't go right into it. Because what? They couldn't go there without us. This is typifying the unity of the church. The unity of the people of God. All in and through Jesus Christ. He is the one mediator, the one high priest of all the Old Testament saints and all of the New Testament saints it's a glorious picture as we come to the end of chapter 11 of what God has done in redemptive history through all of these stories we just have all of these stories and and it's just a glorious picture of what he has done in and through Jesus we go back to Zechariah the Old Testament reading this morning what was it doing pointing us to Jesus AJ's reading the New Testament the Gospel of John what's it doing he's arrived He's died and ascended and rose again. That's where we're at in the book of Hebrews. And it's having these despondent, discouraged, weary pilgrims to be reminded that God is faithful. He will do what He says He will do. Oh, dear Christian. Oh, dear first century Christian. First 21st century Christian. Trust God. Trust Him. Believe. Keep the hope. Don't grow weary. Don't grow despondent. Don't let these things drag you down in the, in the mire and become the murmur and the complainer that God's somehow forgotten us or He won't do what He said He would do. No. As He said, I hope it's true of us. You remember what He said in chapter 10, verse 39? We are not of them who draw back into perdition. No, we're not. We're not going to turn right. We're not as the church of Christ going to turn left. But we are them that believe to the saving of our souls. Brothers and sisters, please, if you see me shrink back, help me. If I see you shrink back, oh, I I hope I'll have the love and the boldness to come alongside you and help you to get back, right, on that pilgrim path and trust in God and His faithfulness. He can achieve great things through His church. We will have to endure great things 
in order for those things to be achieved. But think of the reward that we are promised in Jesus. Cannot be changed. It cannot be taken away. Let's go to him in thanks. Heavenly Father, O oh God, we pause to give you thanks and glory, Lord, for this testimony of really your faithfulness in the lives of these individuals, Lord, who no matter how checkered, no matter how spotted, Lord, their past was or the makeup of their natural character, God, your grace transformed their hearts. Your gospel transformed their lives. And oh God, you used them to do great and mighty things. Lord, we saw examples, no doubt, of individuals acting in the faith that you had granted them. In verses 29 and 30, we saw individuals gathered corporately, uh, doing great things, Lord, through the faith that you have granted them. And I do pray, O oh God, as we are preparing to go into the next chapter, that we would have this great three-month-long catalog of your faithfulness in the life of your people who lived out a reality that they really were, O oh Lord, assured that you would accomplish great and mighty things according to your namesake. You will never fail Lord, you will, you will never not fulfill a promise that you have given and you have spoken into your created realms. I pray, O oh God, that you would help your church today, help all of us to look at this text and be reminded of who you are. You are still on the throne and you still, O oh God, will do mighty and glorious things even in our own day. God, I pray, help us to see these blessed truths. Help us give us the eyes that Gideon had, Lord, after you changed his heart. Help us to have the eyes of Rahab and Barak and Samson and David and Samuel and the prophets. Lord, wipe away, I pray, the dimness that may, Lord, uh, come and crouching in upon uh, our faith. Uh, Bless us, help us, Lord. We need you. We need more of your sustaining, preserving faith in our lives, in our families, and in our churches. And we trust that you will do this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.